0: Good morning again. We're continuing our series in partnership, and this is the last week for the partnership series. What we've been doing is we've been looking at different New Testament texts that show us what it looks like to be God's people partnering with each other in a local church. And in this process, we're giving you the opportunity to partner with Grace Bible Church. We've got some forms in the back and constitution and places where you can sign up and say, "Uh, I am a partner with Jesus, I'm a follower of Christ, but I also want to then partner with you in this local church. So you've got that opportunity. We continue to invite you to do that. Those forms are in the back of the room. Uh, you can fill those out and call us or email us and we'll talk more about that. Uh, after this week, we'll be looking at some sermons where we try to prepare our hearts for the coming of Jesus. Uh, in the Christmas season, it's a crazy time of year um, and it's easy to be actually drawn away from Jesus towards the commercialism and everything that's else, every else everything else that's going on. Uh, but we want to refocus our hearts. So Uh, The next four weeks, we'll be looking at who Jesus is, what he brings. We'll be focusing on the prophecies of Isaiah as we look forward to the coming of Jesus with God's people in the Old Testament. So partnership, we're going to be today for the last week in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we are calling it Participation with Christ. And I didn't write down the page number. Anybody got one of those black Bibles under the chairs? What page is that? 957. So if you're just grabbing one of those Bibles under the chairs, it'll be on page 957. You can follow along there. And if you don't have a Bible at home, take that. We've got extras. We'd love for you to have a Bible you could look at uh, on your own. So page 957, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, for the study today, we're going to focus on verses 11 through 22, but I'm going to read starting in verse 1 this morning. Uh, every week when I share God's word with you, I typically start with a story that is an example of the big idea of the passage for that day. Uh, And this week, Paul has given me that story. He's given us an Old Testament story starting in verse 1 that he says is an example for us of this concept of taking religious marks but not actually being faithful to God. And so we see this theme a lot in the Old Testament. We see it repeated in the New Testament. Hebrews talks about this, if you want to cross-reference this idea. Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 talks about how that was happening in the Old Testament, and it can happen to us today. We can have the external marks of being a follower of Christ, right? You can have a Christian bumper sticker and not know Jesus. Did you know that? That is possible, okay? So that might be a ridiculous extreme, but Paul's going to give some examples here from the Old Testament. We'll read starting in verse 1. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So what he's saying is we have baptism today where we symbolically identify with Jesus uh, through water, through the profession of our faith. And in the Old Testament, they were identified with their Savior, Moses. Moses saved them out of the wilderness. God was at work in their midst. And so they had a participation. They had these external marks of being a part of God's people. The cloud led them through the wilderness the parting of the Red Sea, they participated in all these amazing things, yet some of them still didn't trust God. So he goes on and he says in verse three, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. So he's saying Christ was there, God is one, even though they didn't know the name Jesus, he wasn't born yet in Bethlehem like we'll celebrate during Christmas time, Uh, but Christ was there. God is one. We know God as God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God has always been God, and God was there in the Old Testament. Christ was there with them, saving, helping, yet some of them didn't trust him. It goes on, verse five. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. When you read the Old Testament stories, it gives you more detail. I believe it's in Numbers 25. Uh, and there in Numbers 25, it says that 24,000 died in this judgment. Um, Some commentators say, well, he says 23,000 in a single day, so then maybe 1,000 more died a few days later. We're not really sure where that discrepancy comes from. We start with giving Scripture the benefit of the doubt and just trust that there's some kind of discrepancy that makes sense. Paul knew more uh, resources than we do. The big idea here is that a lot of people died, right? That's a lot of people. There was a judgment that took place because they weren't trusting God. They were rebelling and engaging in sexual immorality. Verse 9. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. All the more that we should learn, because we're living in these end times that were started through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So he says, we've got to pay attention to this example. Verse 12, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed Pay attention, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he'll also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So there's some maybe confusing stuff for you if you're not familiar with these Old Testament stories, but he ends with this main idea. Therefore, brothers, flee, run away from idolatry. Idolatry is worshiping a false savior. We think of it in very concrete terms as an idol, as a little statue, right? I'm going to put this statue of this false god on my mantle, and then I'll bow down to it. But more broadly than that, the scripture says we can worship any power, anything, as an alternate savior. He's saying, brothers, sisters, flee from that. Don't believe that these other saviors will save you. Only Jesus will save you. We're all guilty of that from the very religious people who are bowing to superstitious idols to the very secular people, and we're bowing down to our own intelligence and science. We're all worshiping something. We're all putting our faith in something. What are you putting your faith in? Are you putting your faith in science? Are you putting your faith in uh, history? Are you putting your faith in the economy? Are you putting your faith in pleasure? What are you putting your faith in? And he's saying here, flee from these false saviors. Let me pray for us, and then we'll try to unpack more of what he has to say as we move through the text. Father, thank you that you invite us to come and listen to you, and we come and hope that you will speak to us through your word. We believe that it, it speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus. Um, we want to hear from you, and we pray that it would, would help us to, to understand who you are and what you're doing in the world. We pray that you would shape us. pray ultimately that you would make us into a people that would love others and serve others, that we'd... Make this world better than it already is, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we move through this text, there's a lot of difficult stuff here, and as I said, there's cross-references that you can go to, a good kind of comparison to what he's saying here is Hebrews 3 and 4, that's helpful. Uh, Also, just to get the background story of what he was talking about in the Old Testament, Numbers 25 and Deuteronomy chapter 32, um, Exodus 15, 16, and 17 kind of cover, he was just kind of skipping through several examples, and he was piling all those examples together and saying, Old Testament people had the marks of being the people of God, yet they didn't love God. And in the New Testament, same thing. We can have the marks of being God's people, we can participate in religious stuff, like showing up for church service, but not really trust God. That's, that's possible. We know that as a reality, we know that's possible, so he's warning us and saying, you know what, there's a difference between this kind of external participation and actually trusting God for real, loving him, trusting him, seeing him as your provider. So the first thing that we'll see in the text is that we should beware of superficial partnership. It's always a danger. There's always this danger of having a superficial connection, kind of religiosity. I think of it sometimes as like a vending machine view of God. Uh, Do you see God as a vending machine and you're putting in quarters of religious participation? God, I've put in my participation of, I gave to the poor, Uh, I showed up at church, I served in the nursery. That's like three coins right there, Um, right? Like I helped an old lady across the street. I read my Bible this morning. I had an ecstatic experience of worship, right? What are those coins you're putting in and you're saying, I participated, I participated. Okay, God, you owe me. You better bless me now. You owe me now my best life now. You've got to give me stuff in return for me being religious. That's always a danger for us. And we have to entrust ourselves to him, not just the stuff we want from him. So we need to beware of superficial partnership. In the Old Testament, God provided for them again and again and again, and it's like it was never enough, and they never really trusted him. I grabbed a picture here of Moses striking the rock and water came out. That was one of these stories that Paul was referencing in the Old Testament. They were hungry, they were thirsty, and God provided for them spiritual food, spiritual drink. What he means there by spiritual is it was supernatural. And so he's saying God provides, and it still wasn't enough. I purposefully picked a cartoon here, right? We've got a coloring page. It's really interesting. In the Old Testament story, uh, they had this rock that was struck, and water came out. And what happened is over the years, because that was such a strange story, there were Jewish traditions that rose up about this story. And they were almost cartoonish. There was kind of like this funny story about a movable well that just kind of like magically moved around with them throughout the desert, right? And that's not not really in the scripture, but it was some of the Jews were kind of making up these traditions. And so some skeptical scholars look at this where Paul says, the rock that followed them was Christ. And he says, see, Paul believed in those weird stories about the cartoon well that followed them around to give them water. And, and what I would say is, you know what, if I give an illustration and I say, I just went to see Justice League. Well, I haven't seen it yet. I'd like to, you know, I like superhero movies. But say, I just saw a Superman movie. And I'm coming to you and giving you this illustration. And I'm saying, the real Superman is Jesus. Jesus is your real superhero. He's your real Superman. A thousand years from now, someone gets one of my sermons and says, see, Dave believed the Superman myth was real because he's quoting it. No, I mean, Paul does this regularly. He quotes the Greek poets. He talks about Zeus and we're in God and we have our being in him. He's not affirming everything and every story about that. So Paul's saying, you've told these cartoonish stories about the well following you around. You know what? Something was following them. It was Jesus, the rock. He's the one that was following them. So always be looking through the, the surface and beware of superficial participation where you're like, yeah, I just, I participated at this level. I saw this. God did this for me. I prayed a prayer. I, I went to church. I did this thing. Always be looking through that too, the, the rock who is Christ himself. Paul's calling us back to the person of God. Are you trusting in God's things, the superficial things, or are you trusting in God himself? Do you see the difference? Do you see how it can even be good things, like we we want you to come to church. But in the Old Testament, God says your church services make me sick. At one point, He's saying you're abusing the poor, and then you're coming and praising me in, in your gatherings. That that disgusts me. So there's a way to do good things badly, where we're trusting the good things like a lucky charm, where we're saying, "Well, I went to church, I gave some money." I took communion. I was baptized, so now I've got this lucky charm that's protecting me, and then I can go involve myself in sexual immorality and be involved in these other things, and it won't really matter. Paul's saying, beware, beware. Verse 11, he says, these things happened to them. Verse 11, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. So these things happened to them. And our life is not exactly like their life thousands of years ago, wandering in the desert. We know there's cultural distance, and sometimes it's hard for us to to see it. It's hard for us to understand the Old Testament. So I would just say make sure we don't make the mistake of throwing out the Old Testament here. He's saying it was an example, and it's helpful. Remember that when the New Testament talks about Scripture, talks about Bible, it's generally talking about the Old Testament. The New Testament author saw the Old Testament as authoritative Scripture. And Paul is saying that here. He's confirming that here. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is God breathed. It was talking about the Old Testament. And so Paul was telling Timothy, trust the Old Testament scripture. Here, he's telling the Corinthians, trust the Old Testament scripture. These stories were given to us for the purpose of showing us that we needed to trust God and not just trust in his blessings and superficial partnership. Goes on, verse 11, they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. We are living in the end times not just because things are crazy in the middle east we're living in the end times because jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead that's what started the end times biblically and and we're still in them and we're looking forward to christ's return and we don't know exactly how that's all going to go down but we look forward to the end of the end times we look forward to him wrapping everything up and fulfilling those promises that we're longing for that are mentioned in romans chapter 8 that Everything will be made right. All of creation is groaning and longing for the sons of God to be revealed and everything to be completed. So we're living in that time, the end of the ages, and in the end of the ages, we need to trust in God and not just trust in the superficial blessings. Verse 12 says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So I put the word beware for this point beware of this superficial partnership. The word in the ESV is take heed. If you're reading most other more modern type translations, it says often, be careful. The word in the Greek is literally look or pay attention, watch out, would be a way of saying that. Beware. Pay attention. Don't think you're standing just by by hanging out with the people of God, right? These guys passed through the Red Sea. These guys saw God miraculously uh, provide for them with the water out of the rock and the manna out of the sky, and and he's saying, and they they still rebelled. So don't rely on your participation. Rely on Jesus. Don't rely on the marks. Don't rely on your Christian bumper sticker. Don't rely on your Christian coffee mug. And those things, those aren't bad, right? I'm not picking on you. I'm just saying, we have these marks of saying, I'm with Jesus. And then there's the life where we actually say, I trust Jesus. And he's saying, you you need to actually trust him. You need to actually know him and love him and entrust yourself to him. Take heed, watch out lest you fall. Verse 13, he's now reiterating this. What does it look like to be in danger of falling? Well, verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So by definition, because of the example he gave from the Old Testament, your way of escape is not saying, well, I'm a member of a church. So if I involve myself in sexual immorality, it's no big deal because I've got a lucky charm of church participation. Well, I'm a part of this religious organization, so then I can do whatever I want to the rest of the week. He's saying that that doesn't make sense. You have to actually trust Him. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm I'm not saying you'll never sin. We will all sin. There's a tricky balance, right? Because as Christians, we kind of swing from one to the other. To walk with Christ means to be perfect or to walk with Christ is like we're all sinners and we mess up all the time. There's this middle ground of, no, we will sin, but we won't live there. We won't just relish in it. We won't make that our life and think, well, it's okay to keep sinning because I've got this lucky charm of church participation. He's saying, no, there, nothing has fallen on you that's not common to everybody else. Don't think it's not fair because... I have the internet, and guys before the internet were never sexually tempted, right? Have you ever thought that? No, they were. No temptation has fallen on us that is not common to man. And when those temptations come, it says he will, he'll provide a way of escape. See, this as gracious. See, this is God saying to you, don't give in to the temptation thinking, I don't care, and you're all on your own. Recognize that in the temptation, I'm there with you, and I'll give you a way out. Therefore, Run. Therefore, flee from the immorality because I'm there with you and I'll help you. We've talked a lot about the vision from the book, The Cure or True-Faced, where we often are thinking, I've got to get through the sin to get to Jesus. I've got to clean up the mess so that then Jesus will love me. And the gospel says, no, Jesus went through the mess and proved his love for you. So now his arm is around you. See him as with you in the temptation, helping you work on that sin. See that he's with you and he will help you get through it. Don't see, well, we'll see if he loves me today or not. We'll wait until I see how I perform. No, see that he's come to you in the cross. Jesus took all your sins upon himself. He gives you his resurrection power. So any temptation you face, he'll provide a way out. He'll walk with you through it. It's not, a oh, I'll see how you do, and then we'll talk later. He's with you. He loves you. That's what the gospel is saying. And so his final admonition then is in verse 14, therefore, because he's going to give you a way of escape, because he's going to help you. Because he's going to walk with you through temptation. You'll be able to endure. Therefore, verse 14, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. Run from it. Run from false saviors. Run from thinking that immorality is going to save you. Run from thinking that pleasure is going to save you. The Corinthians were very open-minded. They were very free. They really focused on how, well, God forgives our sins so we can sin more. They, They did a lot of things where they were abusing their, their freedom. And Paul's working through that with them over several chapters. Chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11 is a whole section that I would encourage you to go back and look at this section and see how he's following this whole theme. And the theme is we don't have absolute freedom. Do we have freedom in Christ? Yeah, we have freedom in Christ, but we are to use that freedom to serve others in love. So kind of two test cases, te- test cases he uses to help you think through how you should use your freedom, whether something's a good idea or not, if it's a gray issue. One is, is it gonna, is it gonna cause a brother or sister to stumble into sin? Is it gonna lead my friend into, into a deeper addiction? If I'm dallying with this, then maybe I should pull back. The other question that Paul makes real cr- clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is he says, I'm gonna decide what I'm gonna do based on what will help more people meet Jesus says, so if, to the Jew, I'm like a Jew. To the Greek, I'm like a Greek. I'm gonna be all things to all people that by all means I might save some. So those are two test cases. When you're not sure, when your behavior doesn't just fall in a clear like 10 commandments, this is wrong, it's always wrong. But when it's a gray issue, he says, one, is it gonna cause other people to, to get messed up? Two, is it gonna help people to meet Jesus? Those are two questions to ask. So when he says flee from idolatry, my question for you is, What is the idol that you're tempted towards? We talk about this a lot because the Bible talks about this a lot. There are a lot of alternate saviors. There are a lot of false saviors that are offered to us. It might be pleasure. It might be money. It might be your job. It might be some uh, addiction that you're wrestling with that the culture has clearly said this is wrong. Or it might be a good thing that the culture says this is good. That's the confusing thing about idols. Sometimes they're clearly marked, like, no, nobody should do that, but you're struggling with it anyway. You're drawn towards it. Other times it's something great. You want to have a good job and provide for your family, and then that can become an addiction, and that can become a false savior. What is the idol that is drawing your, your heart away from God? And he's saying, recognize that any temptation you're facing, there's a way of escape, and the way and the truth and the life is Jesus himself. Run run to him. Recognize what the idol is. Recognize that superficial partnership in religious things is not enough to protect you, but you need to trust in Jesus himself, not just in the marks of being God's people. So another way of saying this is don't just participate at a superficial level and then think you can do whatever you want to do the rest of the week. Actually pursue Jesus. Actually pursue Jesus. And so that leads us to the transition to this next point. And the next point is that we should pursue cross-centered partnership. He's going to talk specifically about communion. He talks about communion, uh, the symbolic meal Christians take part in to show our faith in Jesus. He's going to talk about that a little bit here in chapter 10. He'll talk about it more in chapter 11 if you want to read ahead. And here he's saying, really, it's about what happened on the cross. That's the important thing. As Christians, we love to divide over how we do things. As we've entered into this uh, formal partnership as a church, we've tried to say many times, this is not the only way to do it. It's just how we're doing it here, right? And I think one of the biggest dangers that churches run into is we say, the way we do it is the only right way to do it. So on the one hand, it's good that we would say, we wanna do things according to the Bible. We're a Bible church, we wanna obey Jesus, so we try to do things based on what the Bible says. But the Bible gives us a lot of freedom to do things in different ways, and there's a danger we fall into of saying, we've read the Bible, and we say this is a good way to obey the Bible. But you know, it's not always the only way to obey the Bible. So be careful of churches that say, we're the experts, and we know this is the only right way to do it. And all those other churches are stupid, right? There are stupid churches out there. But we just need to be careful of saying all of them are, and we're the only right one, right? That's, just a, that's a mark of something you should watch out for. People should find... Their authority in Scripture, but they should be able to separate between here's what Scripture says absolutely, and then here are some negotiable things. I grabbed a picture here of communion. Uh, This was this is a priest wearing I think it's a Lutheran priest. I'm not sure exactly what this is. A lot of traditions do this. They wear robes. They wear more fancy clothes than I do. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Um, They pass you have to hold your hand in a certain way. They pass out a certain kind of wafer. What we're going to argue from the text here is that's fine. If they want to do that, that's fine. But the point is Jesus. And you know, we're going to do communion the way we do it here, and next year we might change it. We might have the stations at the back of the room. We might pass them out to you. We've done it differently in the past. The point is Jesus. The point is the cross. Do you see that? So if you want to talk afterwards, we can debate uh, transubstantiation, we could debate the different views of what actually happens invisibly in communion that we don't really know because it doesn't really say in the Bible. Or we can say, the point is Jesus. The point is Jesus. That's the main point. And so let's look at the text. I, I, I'm talking too much without looking at the text. Verses 15 through 17. It says in verse 15, I speak as to sensible people. So he's like, all right, you people can understand me. Judge for yourselves what I say. Here we go. Verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ, a Greek koinonia, a fellowship, a partnership, an active yoking of yourself with Christ? So he's saying, when we practice this, when we bless our cup, when we bless the bread, when we have communion, we'll say, when we have the Lord's Supper, is it not us partnering with Jesus? Isn't that what it's supposed to be? And the rhetorical answer is is yes, that is what it is supposed to be. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So we can debate the elements. We can debate whether or not it's okay to have leavened bread or unleavened bread and how true we want to be to the Passover meal and the symbolism of wine versus the symbolism of grape juice versus the symbolism of my friend that... Uh, helped to start an indigenous church in India. They practiced communion with non and chai, right? Like you can argue, maybe that's not holy enough, but the point is Christ, right? The, the point is Jesus. The point is the broken body and spilt blood of Jesus. So, so I'm not saying you're, you're not allowed to debate me about how we do it. That's Yeah, let's talk about it. But my hope, my, my prayer, and I think Paul's prayer for you is that you would see through the participation to Jesus himself, that you would be pledging yourself to Jesus, that you wouldn't just be seeing it as a lucky charm. And we can, again, blow that up to everything that we do. When you serve the poor, are you serving the poor as a lucky charm to force God to bless you? Or are you serving the poor because you cannot believe how gracious God has been to you in your brokenness and in your need? James says, marks of Christianity are keeping yourself holy Caring for orphans and widows. Are you going to adopt an orphan because you think then God will owe you blessings? Are you going to adopt an orphan because you know you're a spiritual orphan and Jesus adopted you? Are you going to care for those who are broken because you know you're broken or because you think you can somehow trick blessings out of God? Are you going to come and sing at church because you think the louder I sing, the more God will have to bless me this week? Or are you singing because you think God is really good? you love him. That's where we should be, and that's what we want to call ourselves to, and that's what Paul is calling them to here. He's saying, don't just see this as a superficial thing, and this is a lucky charm, and so you can go be involved in immorality in Corinth, which again, Corinth was the Las Vegas slash New York City of the first century. It was just incredible immorality, and so they're struggling with where the lines are. They're trying to figure that out, and we struggle with that as well And Paul is calling us to say, okay, don't think that you can be immoral and then wave a magic wand of of church participation that makes it all okay. He says, actually pursue Christ. Actually pursue the cross, the broken body, the spilt blood. The story of the cross is that Jesus' body was broken for you, that you and that I deserved the wrath of God. We deserve that, but God so loved us that he sent his only son. And that Jesus absorbed the wrath of God. That God Himself took the payment that we owed Him. He paid for us by His broken body and spilt blood. And He didn't stay dead, but through the resurrection, He imparts to us resurrection power, new life, so that when God looks at you, He delights in you. Do you believe that? In all of your religious participation, is it you seeing through this to see this? bigger truth of a God who delights in you and Jesus. The more you see that, the more you have this cross-centered participation, understanding what Jesus did for you, the more you'll overflow and you'll want to serve others. You're not gonna serve others to get something out of God, but you're gonna serve others because you believe God has blessed you so much in Christ. So what are, the, what are the things you're tempted by? I thought it might be helpful for you to hear my own confession where I struggle in this area. Um, I don't really struggle with communion, thinking that communion is a lucky charm. I don't really struggle with singing as a lucky charm. Uh, I think we all have something in our life where we might struggle with thinking that it uh, can be a savior in and of itself, religious participation. Um, Often it's the, the thing that consumes your time and your energy. And so for me, it often is ministry. It's often ministry itself. So I believe God has called me to ministry. My my job as a full-time pastor at the church is to help people to understand Jesus, help people to meet Jesus, grow in their walk with Jesus, help people to serve others and lead others in the name of Jesus. But you know what can happen is this is a little switch that that gets flipped where I'm starting to think that my security before God is based on how successful I am in ministry. Where I think, maybe God's not pleased with me because not enough people met Jesus this week. Maybe... My security is shaky before God because I didn't train enough people this week or we didn't see enough ministry success in ministry numbers. So that's an area where I struggle. And does that mean I then need to throw it out, quit my job, go move to Montana and cut wood or something, right? Well, no, I think he wants me to hang in there. I think he wants me to hang in there, but I think he wants me to do it out of a motivation of grace. Not thinking somehow my relationship with God is based on ministry success, but that I would see how much he's loved me in Christ. And because of that, I would want to get up the next day and try again. And so I think that could, true, could be true for any of you. i would just ask you to think about in your own hearts, where, where's the area where you're likely to drift? Often it's your area of gift, your area of vocation, your area of calling. You start to think, this is who I am instead of, no, I'm a beloved child of God that happens to do this, right? So I'd ask you to, Try to diagnose, try to think about what are those areas where you're, you're drawn away to another savior. Often it's religious things that you're thinking, this saves me instead of Jesus himself. See, see through that to the cross and see through it to a God who's come after you in Jesus. And then because of that, you're gonna do things to serve him. The last thing I want us to see is that we should recognize the supernatural partnerships that we're engaging in. This is gonna be a hard one for you, so I just wanna worry you, uh, warn you, it's, it's a little bit scary here. He's talking about demonic stuff. And so I just want to throw out a caveat. I know we're all modern people and we don't believe in the supernatural, right? Okay, just saying that. Uh, But I'm just going to challenge us to maybe believe in the supernatural, maybe believe that there is something going on behind the scenes. So just kind of recognize that as modern people, even Christian people, we tend to want to like reduce our faith and put it in a box and keep it isolated from our everyday life And the spirit of the age is one of secularism and mechanical explanations. And the more we grow in our understanding of science, the more great mechanical explanations we see for how the world works. And that's all fine and beautiful. But just be careful. Don't start to think that the natural world is all there is. I think that's just an important thing to be aware of, to pay attention to. Recognize there is a supernatural reality in this world. So let's look at verse 18. He says in verse 18, consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? So he talked about participating in the communion meal should be a participation in Christ. Talked about in the Old Testament, their participation in the religious things should have been a participation in these spiritual things. And he's saying, am I implying then if you participate somehow in idolatry, that that means the idols are real? Because we know the idols are not real, right? And that's a confusing thing in Scripture. Again, go back and read all of what he's saying in chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11. He he covers this in more detail. So Paul's going to say, false gods are not real, but there is real demonic spiritual power at work in the world. He's saying both things at the same time. So he's saying, Aphrodite is not real. There is no Aphrodite. But you know what? Saying you're an enlightened Christian that says, well, I've participated in communion, so I'm safe. And I know Aphrodite is not real, so I'll go ahead and hang out at the temple of Aphrodite. Bad idea, Paul says. Bad, bad idea. Be careful because there is real dark power involved there. There is real spiritual forces at work. Be aware of this supernatural participation. When you pledge yourself, and let's, let's skip temple of Aphrodite, right? Because probably most of you have never been to the temple of Aphrodite, any of you? Couple of you, maybe. Um, Let's just think, let's just kind of bring it down to something very basic. When you pledge yourself to the economy, when you say, the economy is going to be my savior, a good job is going to be my savior, Paul is saying, when you are aligning yourself with a false idol, there are actual demonic powers at work. So again, I know I lost you if you came in not believing in that already. I just want to say consider it. Consider it. That when you pledge yourself to pleasure, when you pledge yourself to money, when you pledge yourself to these false idols, they're not real. They're not real gods. But there are these demonic strongholds at work that are involved there, and it's dangerous. Again, Paul's big word is flee. Run. Be careful. This is dangerous stuff. So he says, consider them. They, they participate in the food of the altar. What do I imply then? Verse 19, that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, the, the, what you eat is no big deal. Idols are not real. But, verse 20, no, I imply that what pagan sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Does he mean you can't actually do that? Could you come and participate in satanic worship one day and then come to the church and participate? Yeah, you can in that sense. He's saying, don't do it. Don't do it. Give yourself to Jesus. Don't, don't think that the lucky charm of this thing will protect you from the participation over here. Recognize there are dark forces at work. There are spiritual powers at play here. There are supernatural things that you don't want to mess with that are genuinely dangerous. Now, C.S. Lewis said in the preface to his book, The Screwtape Letters, he said there are two dangers that we involve ourselves in. One danger is we say that there's a demon under every rock. And so some of you were probably raised in very religious homes that were terrorized by that, right? A demon in every corner and kind of a preoccupation with it. But he says the other problem is saying there's no such thing at all. And I think that's the bigger problem in our culture. I think in our culture... We're just so smart that we know there can't be anything we can't see because we're so smart we can see everything, right? And that's dangerous. That's called hubris, to use the ancient Greek word. That's pride, thinking we've got it all figured out. And he's saying there are things at play that we don't understand. Just recognize the limits of your own knowledge. Recognize the limits of your own experience. None of us know everything. And there are spiritual forces, supernatural forces at work that we need to be careful of. And so one danger is saying they don't exist. One danger is being worried about it all the time. So let me give you a way to not be so worried about this. Um, James 4 is a parallel passage to 1 Peter 5. So I mentioned this a few weeks ago when we were in 1 Peter 5. In both places, James says you need to watch out for the devil because he's real. And the way that you actively watch out for this uh, evil in the world is through humility. So our danger when we get in the trap of the devil is pride, and our way of escape is humility, which which lines up exactly with what we've been seeing already in this text about the cross. God will provide a way of escape. Jesus is there for you. Recognize his broken body and his spilt blood. Recognize that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that starts with humility. That starts with recognizing that I can't save myself and I need him to save me. I can't figure it all out on my own. I need his help. I need other people's help. And so James 4 says it this way. I'm going to read James 4, 4 through 6, uh, 4 through 7 for you, which sets up fighting the darkness, fighting the evil, the spiritual powers, demonic forces. James 4, 4, he says, you adulterous people, which means you're cheating on your spouse, and he's talking spiritually. He says, you adulterous people, you're cheating on God. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So this is pursuing the things of the world, thinking that they'll provide everything you need instead of trusting your true husband, the Lord. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, he says, makes himself an enemy of God. Do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? We're going to end our text in 1 Corinthians with the jealousy of God. God's not going to let you flaunt your flirting With false gods. He's not going to allow that to continue. He says, God jealously yearns over you. Verse 6, but don't be too afraid. Verse 6, he gives more grace. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We've said this before. There are two kinds of pride, two kinds of humility, two kinds of pride. One kind of pride is saying, I'm strong enough, I can do this on my own, I don't need God. Obviously wrong, the Bible says he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So when you recognize, I need God's help, that's a humility where you're coming to the cross and saying, I need what Jesus has done for me. There's another kind of pride that's a little more sneaky that I keep warning you guys about, and that kind of pride is an obsession with your own shame and guilt. And so what's happened is there are things in your past or things that you're involved in now which you're so ashamed of and you feel so guilty about that you think God can't handle it. And that's a form of pride of saying, I am so amazingly bad that God can't touch me. I'm so good at being bad that I'm stronger than God and His grace on the cross can't overcome that. And so again, it's a, it's a form of pride. So you need to humble yourself in your shame and say, He can take my shame. He can make up for my weaknesses, and he can make up for my wrongs. Jesus is enough. So he's saying, humble yourself. When you humble yourself and come to him, the devil will flee from you. He's a bully. He'll run away. So we don't know everything about spiritual forces in this world. I don't know everything about uh, demonic power. Um, but I know that if you come to Jesus, he'll, he'll help you. He'll be enough. So I'm calling us to, to come to Jesus. Don't flirt with these other things in the world and think that you can just sprinkle some Christian participation on top of it and everything will be okay. Run from this and run to Jesus. Turn from sin as a savior and turn to Jesus as a savior. Don't continue to participate in these sins thinking they'll somehow save you or there's somehow a compromise that's possible. There's a choice. There's a crossroads. I have a picture here of two paths